Good morning. Uh, thank you for coming today. Uh, we've got um, quite a program for you. Uh, we have colleagues here from New York Times Magazine, from the OSCE um, monitoring mission in Ukraine, from um, the Bellingcat Group in England, and from Karikhtiv. Uh, we're here to talk about the shootdown of Malaysian airliner uh, 17 on July 17 last year. I remember that day vividly because uh, within 20 minutes of the shootdown of the airliner, uh, I saw something on, uh, in the media that um, FSB Colonel Gierkin Strelkov had put up something uh, announcing with some satisfaction the shootdown of a quote unquote military plane. And of course, since there were no reports of the shootdown of a military plane, it was pretty clear what had happened. Uh, I was in Berlin uh, a week and a half after that. And I learned a new phrase uh, as I was preparing to go to Berlin called Putinversteher, which meant uh, people who understood sympathetically Mr. Putin and his policies, which is something that characterized the German political system and society pretty much uh, through the summer, before and up through the summer of 2014. Uh, and in our conversations with Germans at that time, uh, we were told that we, 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 could, we could feel the residue of Putin Versteyer as we discussed the Kremlin aggression in, in, in the east of Ukraine. But a high German official, someone who had worked with me in Moscow when I was a diplomat in the early, in the mid 80s, said to me that the German public was becoming um, quite concerned about what was going on surrounding the remains of the airliner. The reports, if you recall, of the looting of the bodies, the fact that the bodies were left in place for um, days and days and, in fact, weeks. And she said to me, you know, if this is how the authorities there, meaning the folks in charge in the Russian-occupied parts of, or Russian-controlled parts of eastern Ukraine, if that's how they treat their dead, how do they treat their living? And that, in a phrase, highlights how the shootdown of MH17 was a turning point in the uh, war of ideas or the war of understanding in Europe about the Kremlin-led aggression in Ukraine's east. So that's the only point I wanted to make. I will introduce now the, the lady who will moderate today's events, um, Yulia Yofe, who is a Russian-American journalist and blogger who works right now at the New York Times Magazine. Um, I first recall encountering her, not personally, but in writing for things she wrote in the New Republic, I believe. Uh, but she has also written and worked for Foreign Policy uh, and The New Yorker. And her articles have also been featured in the Columbian, Columbian Journalism Review, The Washington Post, Forbes, and elsewhere.
Thank you all for coming this morning. Thank you for inviting me to participate in this event. Um, I think we can all remember where we were a year ago, and I think we're all having a similar feeling this morning that it's hard to believe that it's only been a year. Um, the images, the first images that we saw that day were horrifying bodies raining down on this village um, that had already been, you know, part of an active war zone. Um, and then the news just grew only more horrifying, the looting of the bodies, the you know meddling with the crime scene. Um, and a year later, the situation, you know, it, it seemed like a game changer at the time, uh, that something so horrible couldn't, and, and seemingly random, couldn't change the course of events in the conflict in Ukraine. And a year later, the situation does look profoundly different. Uh, I would argue that the event helped shape uh, European resolve to get behind more robust sanctions, uh, and that coupled with a precipitous economic decline in Russia really froze the conflict in place. I think Russia was willing and ready to go further in eastern Ukraine to take Mariupol and maybe hack a land route to Crimea, uh, which it was finding difficult to supply. And instead we have this strange conflict, this no man's land in uh, the Donbass. Nobody seems to want this region anymore. And I, f um, I feel like that this, the, the way the conflict stands in Ukraine now can be traced back to that morning one year ago when um, these poor people flying to, uh, flying home or on vacation were just shot out of the sky. Um, it's been, as, as we all know, um, part of a, a fight over basic facts and what happened, uh, and the re uh, you know we'll hear from speakers today who whose work has whose and diligence has tried to keep you know people focused on what are actual facts, what are actual images, to try to keep uh, the narrative focused on what actually happened rather than a muddying of the waters and uh, a devolution into. I don't know, an epistemological gray zone, uh, no man's land. So um, without further ado, I'm going to let you guys take over. Good morning. It's a real honor to be here today um, alongside some fantastic, sorry. Um, my name is Iggy Ostanian. I'm a contributor to Bellingcat. Um, we've been doing some investigation in relation to MH17. And I would like to talk to you about um, one of the central things that we were able to find um, in the report that we produced in November last year. So on the slide there, you'll be able to see an image produced by journalists at Paris Match. Um, this was of a book, Missile System, outside of Donetsk on the 17th of July last year. And this was really the starting point for something that I've worked on last year as well. And this was something that we, we used in our investigation. There were numerous images and videos taken by local people in the Snezhny and Torres area and in occupied separatist controlled territory in Ukraine. Geolocating um, these images and videos, so being able to compare their location um, with open sources like Google Street View and Google Satellite View meant we could identify that this was separatist controlled territory. And this also meant that we could prove that 
the separatists had a book um, on that particular day in their possession. There was also a video produced by the SBU that showed um, a book missile system with at least one missile missing the day after the attack, seemingly returning back to Russia. In September last year, I started doing some investigation for Bellingcat that would later um, evolve into a report that we would collectively produce. And it was a real privilege working with our contributors. And I'll just talk to you a little bit about how um, it, was able to, it was able to discover that um, the book that shot down MH17 had actually come from Russia and had actually come from a specific military unit in Russia. So this was one of the first images I was able to find on Instagram just by searching for things like book in Russian. And what this shows is that at the end of June last year, there was a large column of military vehicles traveling through places like Staryosko, um, and this column had books in it. And it was quite an interesting image to find because by narrowing down that particular time frame, it was possible to uncover more and more videos showing the same thing in, in different areas. And it was possible to establish a kind of chronological order of the, of the locations that this column had traveled in. This led me to find um, a particularly interesting video in a place called Alexeyevka, which was filmed by a local person uploaded to the Russian website Kontaktia, the Russian equivalent of Facebook, in June last year. And it was quite interesting because there was a book that was similar to what was seen in the Paris Match image. So there was a, a remnant of a number there that was quite similar to what was seen. And you know, from what we know, the Russian military had been sending military equipment to, into Ukraine with numbers and identifying marks partially painted over. And this led me to find this particular image, which you know, was a really important high-res image that um, had basically come from Instagram and was just you know, uploaded by a local around Staryosko, just showing um, you know, the book that downed MH17, that this was uploaded unwittingly by somebody you know, weeks before the attack had actually taken place. So you know, it was possible to go and make comparisons from there to, you know, on the, on the left you see the image from Russia in June, on the right you see the image from outside Donetsk on the 17th of July. And there were numerous markings. There were, it wasn't just the remnant of a number, it was actually a, a, an entire set of identifying features that showed that this was the same book, that there was this, this was you know, irrefutable evidence that it had come from Russia. Alongside this, analyzing the number plates of the vehicles in that column was particularly useful because it had actually led to a particular unit in Russia that used the same area code um, and was armed with books. And it was actually possible to go and find um, a contact here, like a, a Russian Facebook page for Russian soldiers from a particular military unit, the 53rd Brigade in Kursk, Unit 32406, and look for the profiles of their soldiers. And it was possible then to get a confirmation 
there was a, you know, matching license plates of, of vehicles seen in the column traveling towards Ukraine and those that, you know, they had uploaded themselves. And this was, you know, the, the contacted page this had come from. So, you know, this was a, a really important link because it's actually shown um, this column had originated from Kursk, which was also, you know, verified by other things. For example, the first chronologically um, ordered video that, you know, I was able to uncover was actually taken outside of Kursk. And, you know, it was possible to, you know, look at certain servicemen in that unit and analyze their images and, you know, images that had shown that there was the link between that unit and the book that shut down MH17. And so the Bellingcat team, um, you know, start, we started eventually looking at all these similarities. We started looking at the, the way the number was ordered, um, the damage to the side skirt of the book. These are basically, you know, bits of rubber over the, over the um, tracks of the book. And we were able to, you know, confirm 100% that this was the same vehicle. And, you know, we tried to use other things as well. So, for example, this is a, an image from a, a Russian forum for the wives, mothers, relatives of Russian soldiers. And this was actually a post relating to somebody related to somebody in the unit. You know, and they were saying that, you know, this unit was being sent towards Ukraine to the Russian border to a place called Milirovo. And this post in itself had meant that we were able to uncover more videos for example, from places like Milirovo, showing that the unit had gone there at that time. So these were, you know, just a number of different things that could, you know, verify that the unit had actually traveled towards Ukraine at that time, weeks before MH17 was shut down. And as well as that, by looking closely at the, the post on that forum, the relatives, it was then possible to go and actually find images from within that column, um, posted by soldiers from that unit and it was possible to again you know gain further confirmation that this actually did take place this actually happened and in the end what we were able to do was essentially you know build up a chronological order of what had happened when it took place and map out the exact route taken by the convoy and this in turn allowed us to then um, look at the dates after the attack and we were similarly able to find that there was some movement of books belonging to exactly the same units, actually going back to the to the unit after the attack had taken place. So, you know, I feel tremendously privileged to have been, to have worked with the Bellingcat team um, to uncover this, and you know, I'm proud to present this work to you today. And I hope that um, you know those of you that haven't seen it will you know see the MH17 report that we produced. And you know that hopefully this will then add to the to the narrative of what had happened on the day. Okay, thank you so much. Um, thank you so much, Iggy. We're now going to. Give us uh, one second, we're beaming in David Crawford of the Investigative Journalist Group Corrective from Berlin that has put out the other hard hit
Hi, David. We're on. How are you? Uh, hi. Um, thank you for inviting me. Um, <clears throat> first of all, I'd like to s s explain something about what we were trying to do at Corrective. Corrective is a nonprofit investigative um, newsroom. We're funded by a German foundation that was created as part of the legacy of the founders of the West Westdeutsche Allgemeine Zeitung, the Brost Foundation. Um, so what we need to do are investigations that are in the public interest. Um, we do stories when there's something important to say. We want to do stories where the readers will say, I didn't know that. And we, t we try to create a um, positive impact for change. So when we started this story, we had to look at it. What could we say that would be in the public interest? And we, we thought that this was a story that could be done in the public interest because there was a war going on in eastern Ukraine. And, um, and part of it, and it was accompanied by a war of words in which the MH17 disaster played an important role. So we thought that what we should try and do is to fact check the information that was about it and try to create a or to put together um, um, information that, that people could um, could rely on. Um, so we so we started um, reviewing statements initially by the Russian government, the Ukraine government, separatist leaders, the Netherlands investigators, the OSCE, the US government, NATO, the German government, of course, since we're um, based in Germany. Um, and initially we looked for facts that everybody agreed on. And one of the facts that everybody surprisingly enough agreed on was that if it was a if it was shot down by a ground-to-air missile, it had to be a book, one of the, a type of missile that um, was initially um, built in the Soviet Union and then in, in Russia. And everybody, the U.S. government said it had to be a book. The um, Russian government said if it was a ground-to-air missile, it had to be a book. The Ukrainian government was saying that. Everybody seemed to um, agree on that. Um, so we were looking for, um, for different information in this part. But we also discovered something very strange in our investigation. And um, Iggy, who you just heard, is, is, is part of that. Because we realized that there was somebody else we had to be fact-checking. And that's Bellingcat. And for us, that was very, very strange. Because here we were, had a whole bunch of countries or government institutions with very, very strong reputations and all of a sudden we realized we had to be looking at a fairly new internet website called called Bellingcat. And to our astonishment we discovered that actually the information that Bellingcat was was putting out there was um, really to a large degree more useful than, than, than many of the governments were doing because they were um, making their their data very transparent so anybody themselves could go and check it. And one of the first things that I did was went and visited Iggy in the Netherlands. And I said to him, how, how do you, um, how are you putting this together? Um, how can I believe you? And he pulled out his tablet and he conjured up a Cyrillic screeboard um, 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 
keyboard for it, and and he started just doing the different stuff that he was doing to to put his um, his um, information together. So I, I very quickly realized that I had to take him seriously. So we actually put them on the same pedestal with all of these these other institutions, and decided that one of the problems, if Bellingcat has a weakness, one of its weaknesses is that it's new and people generally are prone to say, okay, anything that appears in the internet you have to put in doubt. So we decided that we could start fact-checking things. And so we began to um, look at um, what everybody was saying. We saw that the Russian government was saying that, first of all, they, they put out two different versions of the attack. They said that it could have been from a by a book missile um, fired by the Ukrainians, or it could have been done by a um, an air-to-air -air missile. Well, you know the two versions basically um, exclude one another. So in essence, what we felt was they were basically saying we don't know. Um, the Americans said that it was a book missile, but they didn't say how they they knew that. They just said that they had. Um, intelligence information that the, um, that they believed in. But this doesn't really help the discussion because um, for a lot of people because they just say, okay, but you know, we would like to fact check this um, ourselves. Um, um, so we began to um, try and look at other sources of information that we could use to, to fact check it. Um, we s did some of the similar stuff to what Iggy was telling you about. We actually ended up downloading entire websites of the, for example, a social media website of the 53rd Air Defense Brigade in Kursk. We just downloaded the entire website. Um, we collected the profiles of as many soldiers as we could. We put them into a database. Um, which included the email addresses and cell numbers of the soldiers so that we could call them and email them because we thought that was something that we could do to add value to the story that other people weren't doing. Um, we also began looking at the military logic of running air defense systems in Kursk and that was something that we thought was missing from the discussion. Why are those missiles there? So we talked to military experts, air safety experts, air crash investigators, air traffic controllers, we reviewed satellite pictures, we created a map of the key to locations and we got ready to go and actually visit the locations. But one of the things that the military experts were, were telling us is that book missiles basically only have one function, and that is to protect Russian tanks. And they said that Russian tanks don't go anywhere without books. And when I decided to call the German Ministry of Defense and ask them what they thought about that, and the, the spokesman who I got on the phone, he said, you don't need to tell me this. And I said, why not? And he said, I am from tank units. He's a officer, a lieutenant colonel in the tank, from a tank regiment originally. He said, we don't go anywhere without our air, um, air defense either. That it's a basic rule of the military um, um, combat um, strategy is that tanks can't protect themselves from air attacks unless they have ground-to-air missiles that they can, they can take with them. So we began looking at that, and then we looked at what are these books and what can they, um, what are their strengths and failures. And one of the things that we learned was that books, 
basically, the, at least the Russian version of it, it's not able to differenti differentiate between friendly aircraft and enemy aircraft, except for anything that is a Russian military aircraft is friendly and anything that isn't, whether it's civilian or whether it's, um, um, or it's a, a, an enemy um, military, they all look the same to it. And we talked to aircraft controllers who said, you know, that when they start work each day, they, they go into a, um, a room and first of all, they just stand there to three to five minutes trying to get a three-dimensional image of the sky around them. And then when they think they have that picture, then they say to the um, person who was before them, in front of them in the shift, they said, okay, I've got it, and he would take over. But when we talked to book operators, people who had been trained um, in the Soviet Union, people who had been trained in um, Ukraine, they said to us, they only have 40 seconds to get this picture. Because within 40 seconds, you can't leave the radar um, of the book operating system on for more than 40 seconds because um, the enemy planes can see your precise location based on this and you're going to be destroyed. And so they began to tell us about a sort of a duel like in the Wild West where you have an airplane up here and a tank on the bottom. Both of them know that they're looking at each other. Both of them know they have the exact same location or the locations of the other. And whoever shoots first is, um, has a much better chance of um, surviving. And so you have a situation where there's very, very little time where um, you have um, opposing interests, both groups want to survive, the pilots want to survive, the tank operators, the book operators want to survive, and there's very, very little time to, to, to make a decision. Um, and we came to the conclusion that this was one of the big problems there, that, that you have a system that wasn't able to clearly differentiate between where civilian planes to them looked like enemy planes. And you had people who had to make a decision very, very quickly or they themselves would die. And so this leads to mistakes. And we, we came to the conclusion that a mistake like this was bound to happen at some point, whether it was going to happen within three weeks before or five weeks after, um, we didn't know, but it, it wasn't a situation that was, that was prone to, to run into a, um, um, lead to a disaster at, at some point. So, and then we started looking at, well, how does Russia make its decisions as far as these books were concerned? But we ha ended up having to look at this because when we were talking to soldiers in the unit, and when we were talking to other people, because we were phoning people from the 53rd um, Air Defense Brigade and we're talking to people and, and writing them, um, what we heard was that these decisions are only of whether to fire a book missile is only made by, um, by officers. That the people who run these systems, they have four years at a military college, basically they're, they're engineers. And, um, and that normal soldiers are not allowed to fire them. One, one person said to us that he, was, he had, I think, four months of training before he was even allowed to drive one of the trucks that, that pulls these, um, these systems um, around with them. And um, so these are very technical systems. Also, that the, the teams that run these systems have to work very closely together. You have um, different units. You have a launch 
ramp, which is mounted on the back of a train tank. You have a radar system mounted on the back of a, a tank. You have a, um, a control um, center, which is within a tank, and then you have an assortment of other trucks and other vehicles. They all have to coordinate and operate um, together, and the teams, they, they have to be in constant practice. So this isn't activity that just could be outsourced to a bunch of um, um, separatist fighters who hadn't done this, who hadn't been to a technical university, who hadn't been training constantly um, for months um, using this system. And also the military logic, the, the people were saying, look, generals aren't going, if you've got a team that's dedicated to defending tanks, who've been training for years to do this, who know how to do it, and you know that those tanks are expensive, the lives of your soldiers um, are at stake, then you're not going to outsource that to people who may, who don't have the training, who don't know how to operate it, and may decide this is Tuesday and I'd rather go visit my mother-in-law than, than, than be there. So they had, they want, they, this is something that you don't outsource because you're defending the lives and also the missions that these tanks are trying to serve also depend on it. And that's important to the, to the general staff that is sending people into this, into this war zone. So we were able to comfortably conclude that this could only have, these, this operation could only have been run by, by regular soldiers and we were able to, when we were fact-checking what um, um, Bellingcat was doing and looking at other information that we were finding. Also, the information that the um, various governments were concerned. For example, the Ukrainian government and the um, Russian government both agreed that the, um, the launch um, platform that Iggy was showing just a few minutes ago were what was actually in the region. They disagreed upon the exact location, but they agreed to within about um, 30 kilometers of another that, that this, this launch ramp was actually within, within the region. And we then actually went to the locations and were able to um, determine that the location cited by Bellingcat was actually um, correct. Um, we also talked to separatist um, leaders who told us that um, um, that they needed um, air defense systems near Shnizhny because of fighting that was going on there. Um, the um, um, Ukrainian government had um, put out information that um, tank um, that it had destroyed tanks in the near um, Shnizhny a couple of days before and one of the separatist commanders whose um, interview with us we posted on our website he said that we had to, they had to put the um, um, air defense to the north and to the um, west of Shnizhny because he said, look, we didn't have, Russia was to the south and to the east, so we didn't need any um, defense there. We went to the north and to the east and we found a little um, group of houses, about 60 houses um, there where the town was basically traumatized. Everybody in this town knew what had happened. They knew that the um, missile had been launched from there. We talked to a lot of people who gave us bits and pieces of what we were going on. We pieced it together and we found also other people who were able to tell us 
a lot more that they saw a um, an object flying back past them that um, looked like an airplane but didn't have any windows and there were a bunch of other things that they were telling us and, wh and one person was able to say um, this was a, the, the missile that destroyed um, MH17. We also posted this um, interview um, um, on our website so people can look and see exactly um, what he was saying. We also found one of the civilian separatist leaders who, who basically took us in, inside the mind of the person who, who he said was firing the missile. He said this was an, a, a Ukrainian um, soldier who was firing a ground-to-air missile. The closer you got to the launch site, the more separatist leaders said it was a ground-to-air missile. Nobody within 10 kilometers of this site would, would say it wasn't a ground-to-air missile because everybody knew. And this one civilian leader, he said, you know, that the, um, the, the soldier was sitting there with, with wet hands. He was frightened. Um, he only had a few seconds to make a decision. Is it... Is it an enemy? Is it not an enemy? Is it friend? Is it foe? And finally he decided he had to shoot it, and so he, he launched the missile. He claimed this was a, um, a Ukrainian um, soldier who was doing this, though why a separatist leader would have um, a conversation with a Ukrainian soldier. He was, though, in a posi position um, because he was one of the senior um, civilian people in the, in the area to have said, I want to report about what exactly um, happened. We never got to the bottom of whether he, um, his, his story is true, but it, it sounded, it fit in with what the um, military people who we were talking to was saying of what they um, thought had, um, had happened. Um, I'm not going to go into all of the stuff that Iggy was talking about. We basically looked at their sites and found that um, what he was saying about them um, was true. We also looked at other sites that the Russian government was talking about and found that um, Sorenska, for example, that um, the Russians said that there was a, um, a book missile launched from there. Um, or at least the launch pads were there, we were able to determine, we talked to the people there, that nobody there had actually seen um, what the Russians purported was, was there. So what we basically tried to do was to um, get feet on the ground to actually go and, and look and talk to people um, as much as possible, to talk to people outside of, of um, Russia, but, or outside of the Ukraine, but also um, in the Ukraine to try and piece this together um, as much as possible. And then we tried to put our information out as transparently as possible. And if you go to our website, you can see um, um, a great majority of the information is available to be downloaded, pictures, videos, um, audio. Um, it's all there for people who want to fact check us. And we invite anybody who wants to, um, we put the exact address there of um, where we had found this. Anybody else can go there and talk to the people like we did. I think that's the way you have to um, verify what was going on. And I think I will um, finish up here. Thank you very much for listening. So thank you so much, David, for joining us all the way from Berlin.
Um, I would also just say a few words about why these two particular groups are, are the ones we invited here today. So Bell and Care Corrective, I think, are great examples of how citizen journalism, investigative journalism can work together. So what Bell and Care was able to do, and these reports are available for you to pick up just right outside, both the Bell and Care and the Corrective reports, they were able to geolocate the positions of the launch site, trace the movement of the book, and what Corrective was able to complement to Bellingcat's work is to send people on the ground to actually verify this information with interviews. And these two reports together provide, I would say, incredibly compelling evidence of what actually happened on the ground and who was behind the MH17 shootdown. And now um, I would like to ask uh, Michael Rishi. Richie to come up. Uh, Michael is the spokesperson for the OSCE. He was one of the first respondents on the ground last year during the shoot down MH17. And I'd also like to remind all of you who are watching online to join the conversation with hashtag ACUkraine. So Michael, with that, please. Thank you very much for that uh, kind introduction. Um, I'd really like to, uh, like to thank the organizers for inviting us here today. It's a real privilege, and especially on a day like today. I also um, want to start off by uh, taking a brief moment. Um, this is really, really important, of course, to pay tribute uh, to the families of the victims. Uh, just a few minutes ago, um, the mission in Kiev, the special monitoring mission to Ukraine, did come to a standstill. We took a moment of silence at exactly 4.20 p.m., 9.20 a.m. here to commemorate the uh, 298 uh, lost souls. And, um, oh, excuse me, also in a statement today issued by our chief monitor, Ambassador Apakan, he said that this tragedy ended the lives of 298 people in the most horrific manner and left a deep scar among their loved ones in the Netherlands, Malaysia, Australia, and all over the world. This is a stark reminder of the heavy toll borne by civilians in this and all armed conflicts. The memory of the victims will stay with the special monitoring mission monitors and remind all of us of our important task to contribute to normalizing the situation in Ukraine. Now, um, we're just going to pause for a moment if we can and run about three or four uh, minutes of a video from Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. This was done by uh, a dear friend and one of Canada's best uh, investigative journalist, journalists, Susan Ormiston, who's, who was one of the first in the, on the scene on uh, July uh, 17th and 18th. And I think it's a good setup to also the work that the Special Monitoring Mission did. And I'll be right back after the video. Thank you. The wreckage was still smoldering when a small team from the OSCE got there. Michael Bocherku, a Ukrainian-Canadian, was thrust into the heart of the disaster to observe and report back to 57 countries, including Canada, but the team ended up doing much more. No other officials arrived for days. Bocherku and Alexander Hug became the eyes and ears of the world. We crossed paths many times. We finally found a calmer place and time to reflect. Now, Michael, you've been here and out at that site almost daily for the last ten, more than 10 days. What stands out for you uh, amongst your observations about what happened? What really hits you is how 
people's lives have been tragically and abruptly interrupted. There were a lot of people on that plane that were on their way on to vacation. The other day I found a piece of literature that looked like it was being carried to that AIDS conference in Melbourne. The most sad thing I think I saw was a note written by someone to themselves on the plane or on their way to the plane and it says one of the things I want to do is have a good vacation and not blow my budget but yet have a good time. I mean it's stuff that, like that that really really stays with you. If I can say on a personal level, we have become almost intimately familiar with that site. We've looked close up at personal belongings. We're able to notice and point out subtle differences. So, for example, going almost daily to the cockpit scene, that has been the most stark in terms of how it's changed. When we first arrived there, again, horrifying stench of death, the, the cockpit appears to have just slammed down into earth. It was pretty much intact. Over the days, we had seen that piece of cockpit kind of spread out like this. Um, day two, I believe it was, there were actually men in uniform hacking into it with a power saw. Uh, it, they could have been involved in active body recovery or human remains recovery, we don't know. But even since then, I, I would say in the past three days, it's, it's been spread out even more. The other striking things, of course, when we arrived here the day after, there were a lot of bodies just lying there, uh, exposed to the elements. Um, it was a horrifying scene. It was horrifying. No one was sure who was in control of the bodies, left in the fields too long. Finally, they were collected and placed in refrigerated train cars for transport to Kharkiv. The site was difficult, but the train was cold and lonely and two days. Cold and lonely and dark. When the Dutch uh, forensic experts, there were only I think three of them came, they did the best they could to at least increase the level of dignity, if we can even put it that way. That was very, very difficult, um, very difficult indeed. The one thing that has powered us through this is knowing that we're doing this for the families. That in this conflict zone where there's no security to the site, where anything could happen, anything we could do to provide some semblance of order and process, that not only the, the bodies of the loved ones but also their personal belongings and documents get back to the families, that was really important to us. The days for us have been very long. Under hot sun, we've seen horrific things um, that we'll never talk about to anybody else. They spent more time than anyone mapping debris over 35 square kilometers. The team still reeling from a recent kidnapping and release of eight of their monitors. All this in Bocherkiu's first three months in the job. Do you sit back sometime and wonder how you landed in this hot spot? at the start of your job? I do, and um, you know, my roots do go back I'm to Ukraine. I'm Ukrainian-Canadian, and I've been here many times. I sometimes feel life may never be the same again. Uh, thanks for watching that. It still sends uh, chills down, down my back to watch some of those images. Uh, the full report is available online if you uh, have to, want to have a look at that. Um, 
Now, in the uh, statement by Ambassador Apakan, <clears throat> I just read, he did uh, mention the uh, heavy toll uh, borne uh, by the civilian population. And uh, I, I think it's really important just to give you a quick snapshot, if I may, uh, on the current security situation in eastern Ukraine as reported by our monitors. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, unfortunately, violence continues unabated and the situation has deteriorated over the past uh, weeks and months. Uh, heavy weaponry continues to be moved around and utilized, uh, and uh, this is really a um, stark st statistic. In the past uh, week alone, almost 2,000, almost 2,000 explosions have been recorded by our monitors in and around Donetsk airport alone. And uh, by the way, while I'm reading, we're also going to, we have some file photos, I think, from the uh, scene of the crash and our work there a year ago. Um, also, our monitors on the ground in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk are monitoring uh, the movement and use of heavy weaponry. Uh, most recently, we've been uh, monitoring the developing logistic capabilities of uh, rebel groups. This involves things, for example, um, con more concentration of ammunition and military vehicles close to what appears to be functioning uh, railway, railway stations. Uh, as most of you know, we have uh, uh, drones, unmanned aerial vehicles in the air, and in previous weeks, they've noticed a large concentration of military hardware in and around um, areas such as Komsomolske. And, um, you know, we're talking about things like main battle tanks, and we're also talking about uh, sophisticated weaponry such as uh, Strela surface-to-air missile systems our, our uh, UAVs have seen. Also, um, you know, there are many challenges to uh, operating in such a conflict zone, and over the past few weeks, our UAVs have also been subject to um, systematic jamming of our video and GPS, and uh, we're talking about very, very sophisticated military-grade uh, jamming going on. Also, um, in terms of people on the ground, uh, what we've also been observing is that the uh, so-called DPR and so-called LPR have seemed... Um, not really able to provide for basic human and societal needs in the areas they're in, they control. For example, the judicial system there seems almost dysfunctional where people who are under detention have to wait almost indefinite periods to, uh, to be seen by, by a court. Now, our colleagues in the UN have been doing a fabulous job in terms of uh, trying as best they can to document the uh, toll on the civilians. And um, the numbers, again, very stark and horrifying. Uh, the latest numbers indicate, uh, the latest UN numbers indicate that almost 7,000, we're almost at that number there, almost 7,000 have been killed since the conflict began. And by the way, that, does, that number does include the uh, victims of MH17. And in terms of number of people injured, uh, almost 17,000. Uh, a number hard to believe, some 2.3 million people have been upro uprooted uh, since the conflict began in April 2014. And this is an important number because remember, a year ago, <clears throat> Ukraine had virtually no displaced people, no displaced population. Now, according to the UN, Ukraine is in the list of the top, top 10 countries in the world with the largest number of displaced people. Amid all of this, people's livelihoods have been affected as industry and commerce is choked and access to supplies and markets are being increasingly cut off. Um, we often re we're often reporting, finding ourselves reporting on this situation at checkpoints on the front line. Um, and people are forced to wait hours and sometimes days at checkpoints uh, that unfortunately are uh, 
uh, subject to frequent shelling are also very close to areas that are mined. Um, another huge, enormous problem is the lack of water. Constant shelling in many towns along the front line have uh, rendered water uh, pipes um, unoperable. Uh, and uh, we've been very active recently in the uh, in Horlivka, which is um, uh, north of uh, sorry area north of DPR controlled Horlivka, where um, we've been able to uh, arrange for daylight mini ceasefires, which in turn has allowed uh, access for repair workers and others to get the water flowing again, and this has potentially benefited uh, 2.5 million people. Now, I mentioned a bit earlier the challenges to the mission, and we do continue to uh, face unacceptable restrictions on our freedom of movement, and that's on both sides. Yet the special monitoring mission uh, to Ukraine remains the main international instrument on the ground in Ukraine, and we will continue to uh, conduct our impartial monitoring. By the way, our mandate has been extended up to uh, March of next year. We've been present without interruption on both sides of contact lines since our inception and will continue uh, to do so. And by the way, at the moment we have around 500 monitors uh, from over four, 40 different uh, participating states. Um, now, just shifting quickly to M817 is that um, one of the latest developments is that in late June, the mission was informed that the Dutch-led investigation team had to discontinue its mission, uh, at least temporarily, due to uh, lack of access in areas controlled by the so-called LPR. Uh, but up until then, the special monitoring mission had been facilitating access uh, for experts and more recently investigators. We facilitated access for, as the photos indicate in the video, repatriation of human remains, of personal belongings, and of aircraft debris. And it was on November 14th um, where uh, recovery work of the debris began, and now uh, the main pieces are back in the Netherlands and are being reconstructed. Uh, going back to the uh, one year, exactly one year ago today, so the mission was on the scene exactly 24 hours after the Boeing 777 came down. It was a horrific scene, as the video indicated, where parts of the aircraft were still uh, smoldering, uh, bodies laid out in the field, exposed to the limits, and incredibly, there was no um, perimeter security whatsoever. The first days were incredibly difficult. Um, when we first arrived on the afternoon of the, the 18th, we were greeted, if we can put it that way, by a small group of uh, rebels who really seemed trying to intimidate us and um, restrict our access. Fortunately, though, uh, in the days uh, after that, the access did improve, and we were able to um, facilitate access for experts from Ukraine, Malaysia, Australia, and the Netherlands. And it was during those first few weeks that we reported to the 57 participating states of the OSCE and by extension to the world via daily reports, uh, spot reports, and countless uh, media interviews. Um, we also held many media scrums and press conferences um, out at the site of the crash and also at the, um, in, in Donetsk itself. And, you know, because um, Ukrainian media in principle couldn't access um, areas that the rebels controlled, what we also did from the crash site is we held many remote briefings to the Ukrainian crisis uh, media center in Kiev. <clears throat> and by the way, the uh, lack of access uh, for Ukrainian journalists is very much in play to this day in rebel controlled areas. 
Um, I also wanted to note as a kind of footnote is that where the plane came down and uh, where the railway station was in Torres, up until then, it was a no-go zone for us. And the reason for that is it's exactly the same area where four of our colleagues were kidnapped uh, several weeks earlier. They were held um, for a month and uh, fortunately were released um, unharmed and unconditionally uh, just a few weeks before May 17 came down. Um, the other important fact I wanted to point out is many of you have probably heard of the Trilateral Contact Group. This is a group that includes senior representatives uh, from Ukraine, uh, from the uh, Russian Federation and the OSCE. And this group uh, regularly by video link um, uh, communicates with the, with the rebel groups. And on the evening that uh, after M817 came down, the Trilateral Contact Group actually did meet. Uh, and uh, it was able to speak to the rebels by video link. And what was um, agreed upon at that time, this is quite important, is to f agreement to secure the site of the crash, to provide safe access to the site for rescue teams, national and international investigators, and for a special monitoring mission monitors, and to cooperate with competent Ukrainian authorities on further practical questions in the course of the rescue operation. Um, again, the, we, we felt very privileged um, to have been there at, at the right time and to do the work that we did. And I just wanted to read a quote from you from the Dutch uh, Foreign Minister at the OSCE Ministerial Council in December 2014. He said that without the efforts of the OSCE, um, uh, the Netherlands would never have been able to make such, so much progress in repatriating human remains, personal belongings and wreckage from the flight. Now, um, I also um, want to say that, I'll, I'll end with this if I can on a very uh, personal note because um, this, this crash, this disaster, as any disaster touches us in many different ways. And um, the, the, the crash site arriving there and working there for weeks um, was very, very uh, heart-wrenching, the things we saw. In January, and I'll end on this note, um, I had the privilege of meeting uh, one of the relatives for the first time from MH17, a very young, uh, talented, impressive uh, young man uh, called Jordan Wither. His uh, uncle, Glenn Thomas, uh, was on the flight. Uh, Glenn Thomas at the time was a spokesperson for the World Health Organization. Like myself, a former journalist, and uh, around my age as well, he was about to turn, uh, about to turn 50, uh, fun-loving, loved to travel. Uh, and um, his, uh, his uh, nephew, Jordan, uh, appeared in a, a BBC documentary on MH17 and spoke very highly of, of his uncle, who, by the way, was on his way to that AIDS conference in Melbourne. And I just wanted to, as a kind of tribute to, to uh, Glenn and also to the other relatives on the plane, just read a couple of lines of what his twin sister Tracy had to say to him. Glenn, there was no uncle or brother like him in the world. He was the most generous, generous, kind person who always thought about others first. He loved life and was doing what he does best, traveling. There's not a bad word to say about him. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Michael. Um, 
Thank you for joining us today. I know it wasn't easy to be there in those first few days and those first few hours on the ground um, in eastern Ukraine. And m people like Michael and other investigative journalists who risked their lives to be in the zone to report what was happening on the ground have really set the narrative and changed um, the narrative around the, the conflict in Ukraine um, and the narrative that the Kremlin media has been trying to put forth ever since. And I'd just like to point out that these investigative groups like Bellingham Corrective, other investigative journalists have been tracking the, the forgeries that the Kremlin has put out, uh, photoshopped images, et cetera, and revealing the truth behind this terrible tragedy. And so I'd like to ask uh, Julia to come back up for a moment to set the stage and for our last two speakers. So as uh, Alina mentioned, um, the investigations that uh, Bellingcat and Collective have been doing have been unprecedented in the sense that uh, usually these kinds of, this kind of work, you know, tracking satellite imagery, uh, tracking troop movements or movements of military material happen behind closed doors and we just get the report at the end. This is in some ways a, an experiment that's being replicated in front of our eyes by people like Iggy and, uh, and others. You're seeing this investigation kind of unfold in real time very, uh, very transparently. The thing, though, is that uh, when you look at the information space, ever since the very first day, it's like people knew exactly what happened, and then very quickly the political narrative or the need for a political narrative kicked in, and both sides kind of dug in on what they thought happened or wanted to think happened. And in that sense, the work of people like Rudy and Simon have been extremely important in that uh, just constantly bringing the narrative back, not to um, you know, whether or not satellite in imagery was doctored or not, but to bodies in the field falling, you know, or falling on people's roofs, to uh, guidebooks to Bali scattered in the fields, or children's books, uh, luggage, just constantly bringing us back to the very real human cost about the fact, as uh, Simon said in one of his reports in uh, Russian Roulette, um, that this tragedy brought the conflict that everybody was trying to kind of sweep to the side of their consciousness to the doorstep of the international community to realize that they had to do something about this, that they had to pay attention because it did, in a very strange, bizarre way, in a year ago, affect them as well. So I'm gonna introduce Simon Ostrovsky, who's an award-winning documentary journalist. He has spent the last year, over the, more than a year, uh, doing frontline reporting for Vice out of uh, Kiev and the Donbass, doing absolutely incredible work, uh, indispensable work. So, Simone. Thanks, thank you, Julia. Um, I just uh, wanted to tip my hat to all of the people who did a lot of the investigations um, that made it possible for us to understand what's happened because you know, initially we came out there and we were just reporting what we were seeing on the ground and it was really horrific, um, but it took all of those investigations that the Bellingcat did and um, Corrective and, you know, journalists from The Guardian and The Telegraph and all of the other uh, newspapers out there who really put in a lot of work into piecing it together um, for us to have an understanding. And I think now we do have an understanding. Um, and. I want to say that 
you know, I haven't done any kind of an investigation on that level myself at all. But what we did do, and I remember the moment when uh, it became clear to everybody um, that a plane had come down uh, in eastern Ukraine, and like what a shocking moment that was. Uh, I was on a train um, from Kiev to Kharkiv. It was one of those uh, Hyundai's that they have in Ukraine. That's a very modern train, and you can feel like in it, like you're in any part of the world. And you're just sitting there. You've got internet in this modern setting, and you're reading your Twitter feed, and there was something that came down about you know, a plane crashing, and somebody said it was a Malaysian plane. And it was like one of those September 11th moments for me, really, um, because at first it just seemed so outrageous and ridiculous um, that I thought somebody was making a joke about the previous Malaysian airliner that had disappeared. Because earlier that morning, um, the rebels had announced that they'd downed a Ukrainian transport plane. I thought somebody was just making a sick joke about that. Um, and, but very quickly, we realized that you know this was a this was a real incident, and we channeled all of our re, uh, resources to get down there as quick as possible and spend the next few days there. Um, but again, this was just on the ground reporting, and it told us what was happening at the time, but it didn't tell us you know the whole backstory of the book. Uh, we've never done an investigation like that. Um, the only sort of I suppose little piece that we've been able to add. Uh, to the general understanding um, of the whole story with the book was we've been able to confirm one of the uh, SBU recordings um, that the uh, Ukrainian security services made of one of the rebel leaders um, in the Lugansk People's Republic, uh, a, a guy called um, Kazitsyn. He was a Cossack leader. Uh, he was recorded by the security services. Uh, and. It's very hard to know whether you can trust some of the stuff that's being put out there on YouTube by the security services or anybody else. So I thought uh, that you know, it was an accomplishment to get in front of this guy and to have him admit that, yes, he was the person uh, who made that phone call. And uh, I think we can play it now. It's from one of the reports we did about MH17. It's just a вы, наверное, видели эту запись, которую СБУ выдавала за ваш телефонный звонок. Это правда были вы? Ну, я был, почему нет? Ну, просто там в этом разговоре вы говорите о том, что сбит был, то есть непонятно был, кто был сбит, и что якобы там казаки как-то были связаны с этим. Нет, я не так говорю. Вот. Мне просто было данное, только, только, только самолет сбили, и мне просто преподали данные, что сбить самолет, и подумал. Я просто сказал, что не хрен летать на территории, где идет война. Угу. Вот это мои слова. Вот. вот и все. А вы знаете, кто сбил? О, ракета. Ну, кто это сделал, вы не знаете. Ну, без комментариев. So I want you guys to know that when I was doing that interview, I was terrified um, <laughs> because we'd come in there with a uh, Russian uh, reporter, uh, Peter Shalomovsky, who's a great photographer. Um, and he introduced himself as being from the Russian publication that he sometimes works for, and I just sort of kept my mouth shut. And uh, we were having a pretty innocent conversation up until that moment. Uh, when we brought MH17 into the picture, and it was obviously something that he really, really, really didn't want to talk about. Um, there's a bit of a pre-story about how we actually ended up there. 
Um, I wasn't planning to see Kazitsyn at all. Uh, we were on our way to see another field commander um, who had recently started uh, doing these people's courts where he was taking people accused of certain crimes, putting them in front of the townspeople and getting the townspeople to vote on whether they should be um, found guilty and executed, uh, and then putting those videos out on the internet. Uh, Alexei Mosgavoy, who's in the neighboring town from Kazitsyn. Um, they had a sort of rivalry going on, which I didn't know about at the time, and we were just driving through Kazitsyn's area uh, when we were stopped at one of the uh, Cossack checkpoints. And the Cossacks asked us where we were going, where we were headed. We told them we were going to see Mosgavoy, and we'd had an invitation from him uh, to interview him about the people's courts. And they were like, no, 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 no. Our commander, he's the stronger commander of the two. You really have to see him. He does all of the fighting. Mosgavoy just sits there and puts videos on the internet. You don't want to speak to him at all. I was like, well, we can come back and see your leader afterwards. He's like, no, you're going straight there. So literally, we were basically escorted with a van in front and a car in back full of armed Cossacks from the checkpoint to an interview with this guy, which we had not planned on doing, who, to be honest, I hadn't even heard of except for because of this recording. Um, and it sort of sunk in, I think, halfway into the interview that this was the guy that the SBU had uh, recorded. Um, so that's the story. That's the story of that. And the reason that I'm telling it is because, you know, this is just like one tiny fragment that gives us the overall picture. Uh, and uh, what everybody else did who was on the ground and uh, verifying the entire uh, MH17 story with the book, um, all of the places that they visited, all of the people that they visited, all of the insane checkpoints that they went through, um, all of the angry townspeople that they probably had to confront, and fearful townspeople who probably didn't want to say what they'd seen. Um, there must be a hundred stories like mine uh, that the uh, investigators, the citizen journalists um, have done, have gone through, um, and you know, I think we owe them all a, a big thanks for doing all of that. Um, so that's what I wanted to tell you about today, about how difficult it is to work outside in, uh, in, in eastern Ukraine, um, and, uh, and to thank all of the people who've been involved in this investigation. Uh, up next, we're going to have Rudy Buma, who is uh, at Newswear. Is that how you pronounce it? News Hour. News Hour. Um, it's a Dutch uh, public uh, television program. And uh, Rudy has reported extensively from eastern Ukraine and um, on the uh, crash of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17. Uh, he has also uh, reported from Afghanistan twice and um, interviewed people like Desmond Tutu. All right. Hello. Yeah, um, from early spring last year, I've been reporting on the annexation of Crimea, uh, the uprising in Kharkiv, and after that, uh, the separatist first military successes in Slovyansk and Kramatorsk. And um, in February, I reported from the DPR about the uh, Minsk II agreements and then the fall of uh, the Balchevo. But of course, after uh, a year ago, I also rushed to the, um, the MH17 crash site after it was downed. And you can play the video. When I arrived there, I was especially shocked. Don't see a video. Wanneer Nederlandse onderzoekers deze romp kunnen bestuderen, 
is onduidelijk. Well. Ja. Dit stuk van de rol. When I arrived there, I was especially struck about the, by the stories of the East Ukrainian villagers who uh, are living around the crash site and often saw bodies falling on their roofs or in their gardens. I recently visited the lady uh, you saw briefly again. Her name is Marina, and she told me that after the downing of MH17, she was so traumatized that she had to uh, take tranquilizers to be able to sleep. And when severe shelling hit her town a bit later, she fled to family elsewhere. Also, about 20 orphans playing soccer witnessed bodies, corpses falling on their playfield. Since the Dutch forensics didn't go to the crash area, directly to recover the bodies, the rebels started to do so. And by then, the smell of the remainings lying in the field in temperatures over 90 degrees was getting unbearable. I've spoken to boys as young as 16 years old who helped firemen and mine workers recovering the often naked bodies. The feelings were not unpleasant, of course. The bodies, you can say, were half, 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 half. По людям, вообще, ну куски мяса просто. Первый день тяжело было, а так потом нормально провокаешь. Emotions while reporting on the disaster never came so close to me as this time. As you know, almost 200 Dutch died aboard the Boeing MI17. Many of them coming from the town where all the TV network networks like mine are based. And in a small country like the Netherlands, it seemed like everybody knew someone who knew someone on the flight. Colleagues and friends of mine had beloved ones aboard. One of my acquaintances uh, had four beloved ones aboard, aboard. And at the time, he was texting me to get first-hand updates on the situation at the crash site. Also, my cameraman, Emmy Award-winning Joris Hentenaar, had a friend aboard flight MH17. Um, these are other pictures. Let me scroll to Rein Specken. This is uh, the 31-year-old Rein Specken from The Hague. Bereaved would not be able to visit the crash area because of the war. Joris and I took sunflowers from the field around it back to the Netherlands. A Dutch floral artist made an artwork from it called Sunflower Bouquet. We donated it not only to Rijn's relatives, but also to almost 250 other bereaved across the world. This is in Australia. An exhibition on this whole process started yesterday in a museum near Amsterdam. The bereaved who opened the exhibition walked to, through. Joris and I tried to bring the sunflower fields of East Ukraine to the Netherlands, since the bereaved in the Netherlands still cannot go to the war-torn east of Ukraine. Only a few small body parts of Rijn Specken were recovered and flown back to the Netherlands on one of the ten impressive repatriation flights. 
but the relatives of this boy, Gary Slok, have nothing. Gary and his mother Petra made this picture of themselves after boarding on MH17. Petra was found, Gary was not. His father and stepmother waited in vain until the end of the identification process, the 1st of July, almost two weeks ago, a little bit more than two weeks ago, actually. And last week, they buried an empty coffin. His father told me he's jealous at other bereaved who do have some small body parts. I've returned to the crash site many times over last year. Reporting from there has not been easy because of the constant shelling. This is, for instance, a rocket crater right next to the rebel-occupied crash site. Zoals je hoort zijn er inkomende mortieren hier. We liggen nu in dekking met de Oekraïners. Dit is het front. Vlak bij die school wordt er nu vuur. Het is inkomend mortiervuur. We of course all know that the separatists started this war and Russia backs them. Your institute, Bellingcat and Simon Ostrowski, all have put forward concrete proof for that. One of the reports uh, Simon didn't mention is uh, a splendid story about a uh, Russian soldier uh, discovered by Bellingcat online. He tracked him down back to Russia and also uh, placed him in the east of Ukraine near the Balchevo uh, in February. You all have to watch that report. Myself, I saw rebels in Donetsk wearing Russian flag tags on their shoulders openly for the first time two days after the crash of MH17. These guys, I'm not sure if you can see it, but where I'm in here, they were, they were pretty friendly actually, but a few others just before we made this picture, they uh, forced us to delete footage, otherwise they would, I quote, shoot our heads off. Recently, I stayed a night in a nuclear bomb shelter in the... Um, Avdivka Koks factory on the Ukrainian side of the front line, only about five miles from the Donetsk airport, I believe. The New York Times also did a story on it. The rebels, uh, they shell it every few days, few days. But despite the fact that several workers died after shelling over the last year, the 3,000 workers keep on producing Cokes for the metal industry. And many of them now actually, actually live on the territory because in its bomb shelters it's safer than in the surrounding villages. The staff and the local authorities do complain that the Ukrainian army is hiding its artillery behind the plant, the hospital and the schools, making workers and civilians a target for the rebels. They say that their own army is ignoring their request to move its tanks to other positions. I've experienced other tra tragic results of the Ukrainian army striking back at the rebel territory. The central bus station in Donetsk being hit, people living in bomb shelters, Lots of kids too, like you can see here, it's in Donetsk. And civilian apartment blocks, hospitals, markets in the DNR being hit, DPR you say I think, being hit by rockets and villages being totally destroyed in the crossfire. The war in the Donbass is a human catastrophe on both sides. Michael gave you some numbers on that. But apart from US weapons supplies and training, Kiev is still on its own fighting the Russian-backed separatists and the Russian soldiers. I believe the downing of MH17 has, has had a very limited effect on the development of the war in east of Ukraine. 
it did reshuffle international power politics, creating a new Cold War. Let me cite a Dutch professor on social administration who says that the Dutch, until a year ago, still seemed to think that our country just has to fight the water. And seemed, it seemed that other evil powers only existed abroad. But after the crash of MH17, my small country suddenly became part of a huge geopolitical crisis. MH17 could be for the Netherlands and Europe what 9-11 was for the US. The defense policy seems to be shifting and our government tends to raise the defense budget after numerous cuts. And all European countries seem to realize that we have to upgrade intelligence and cooperate in foreign policy. But our government is very cautious not to blame the Russians as um, the suspects for downing MH17 at this moment. Our prime minister is also always pointing out them that we have to wait for um, the investigation committee's report, which comes out the half October. And um, yeah, as you know, probably that CNN claimed this week, this investigation real report will state that the rebels uh, took MH17 dow out, uh, down. I, I personally don't think that this report will state that because um, the investigation team is uh, just investigating investigating the cause and sources within the team also say that they're trying their best to keep the Russian investigators also involved aboard the team. Pointing out the suspects is the task of our public prosecutor who runs its own investigation, which outcome is due later. As you probably know, our government um, suggested to install a United Nations tribunal for the prosecution, but Russia is blocking this. Many legal experts Experts are also uh, skeptic about such a tribunal for various reasons. Early June, I returned to the MH17 crash site with the father of victim Rein Speck, who I mentioned earlier. He met with a rescue worker and with the local mares. Reci touched the ground of the so-called burn site in Grabovo, where his son died. He laid down roses at the cross which is supposed to keep evil out of the village. De rozen ruiken heerlijk. De, de kleuren, dat zijn negen rozen voor de familie van Rijn en voor de familie van Desiree, zijn vriendin. En die ene roze roos is namens alle nabestaanden van de MH17. Another bereaved, a 22-year-old man who lost his 18-year-old brother recently said to me that they say time heals all wounds, but after one year, this wound has not healed a bit. Thank you. crash affected Netherlands disproportionately. Um, and thank you so much for all your reporting that you've done on this. So now we've had some uh, discussions from all of our uh, distinguished guests, and I would like to ask all of them to now come up and have a discussion on the stage. So Julia, please, um, Simon, Iggy, Michael, Rudy.
Okay. Um, I think I'll, this is a question for all of you guys. Um, you know, it's it's a, exactly a year later, and I think for, unfortunately, for most people outside of this room or outside uh, the Netherlands or Ukraine or Russia, this <clears throat> anniversary barely registers. Just as it, as the tragedy exploded into the world's consciousness, it also very quickly faded. Why is this? And why should the world keep paying attention? Um, you know, as spokesperson for the Special Monitoring Mission, it's one of the things, unfortunately, I struggle day after day more recently, is keeping uh, Ukraine in the headlines. It's very important that uh, the news media continue to cover the conflict in Ukraine. Of course, there's a lot of competition now with what, what else is going on in the world. But the worst thing that could happen right now if the world averted its gaze from, from the conflict there. Uh, in terms of the, the disaster itself, uh, there's still um, quite a bit of interest. Um, I think you know, part of the problem we're finding, because we do as much as we can help facilitate access uh, uh, for journalists, and I've had the privilege of working with professionals like Rudy, for example. And um, the, because of the restrictions on access, it's becoming increasingly difficult uh, for uh, many journalists to, to access the area. I think Simon can talk about that too. But um, so we're doing whatever we can to get the information out of there through our daily reports, through, through spot reports. But as I indicated in my uh, presentation, we are facing severe uh, restrictions on access. I mentioned the jamming of our UAV, uh, things like that. So um, hopefully this will, this will lift and people will have more access. The other thing, of course, is that uh, when we do report, there is, um, as everyone knows, a propaganda war going on. And it's amazing to watch what, whatever you tweet or post on Facebook, how things can be taken one way or the other, spun around, or, or misinterpreted. So. We, the mission, as much as possible, I think one of our strengths is, and I don't mean to sound like a PR guy, but it really is the way I feel, is that part of our strength is our integrity and our transparency and the fact that we only report what exactly we, we see with our own eyes and ears, and we, we try to stay away from, from speculation. Yeah, I must say that uh, because of the crash of MH17, I, I got the opportunity to report on the war uh, in the east of Ukraine much more than I would probably have if uh, MH17 didn't crash. Um, so that's, that's an advantage, you could say. Um, it is uh, getting more and more difficult to move around, as Michael was saying. I was there in June. And uh, right now, um, you have to have, I think, four passes uh, from both sides of the conflict uh, to, get, to get around. And I was just talking about the, the, the Avdivka Cox factory. Uh, to give you an example, uh, to get there from Donetsk, which is, which is probably uh, seven or eight miles or something, uh, to the Avdivka Cox factory, it took me five and a half hours uh, to just mm -hmm. cross the front line and all the checkpoints, especially the Ukrainian uh, side is, uh, of course, uh, checking everybody very well now, big traffic jams um, on, on, uh, at these, these checkpoints. Uh, so that's, that's very difficult. W one thing which has surprised me a lot, uh, I must say, is something I referred to in, in, in my speech was that MH17 um, did not really uh, affect uh, the war much. I mean, uh, the Kremlin has just uh, kept on denying uh, any involvement in what, uh, MH17 as well is in the war in the east of Ukraine. Um, and that's, that's something uh, um, uh, scientists or, or people who knew, know uh, uh, much more about politics than I do uh, have to uh, uh, judge on. But that, that's something that surprised me a lot, to be honest. 
But as a citizen of the of a country that, uh, like Alina said, has been disproportionately affected, I'm sure it's still very much part of the discussion and the you know news metabolism in your country. Why should the rest of the world keep paying attention? Yeah, as I told you, I mean a lot of people in Holland are frustrated that. Um, uh, that the, our government and the investigation committee are so silent. Uh, they really want uh, to, to hear something, to hear some news. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of controversy about the fact that uh, we're not hearing anything about that, that our, our uh, prime minister is also so, uh, so cautious to, uh, to point anybody out as, uh, as a suspect. Um, but yeah, it's just a few months now. Uh, we will probably hear more about that. Uh, it's something that, that the Dutch really need, it seems. Do you think that's because, you know, if they come out and start um, pointing the finger, that it obliges them to a course of action? Well, uh, it does. So that's, that's a new political problem, which appears if they, if they, if they uh, do so. Of course, it's a small country in the, in the Netherlands. It's, it's very difficult to deal with a big country like Russia. But even for Europe, um, it will uh, cause a lot of uh, well, uh, problems and think about, to, to think about. I mean, will there, would there uh, have to be more sanctions? Uh, what, what way uh, would we, uh, like, um, uh, you've got the gas, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, big issues which have to be solved. And so I think also a little bit our uh, government <laughs> is looking up to that, uh, that problem. Um, uh, but on the other hand, of course, it's also reasonable to, uh, to have the investigation committee uh, work in peace. Mm -hmm. We'll come back to the Dutch uh, connection, but I think uh, Iggy wanted to say something. Yeah, so the question you asked was, um, why should the world not avert its gaze from MH17? And I think, you know, as Rudy talked about, you know, in the Netherlands, it was a you know, an extremely significant event, you know, to relatively small country with a relatively small population. And, you know, I think a lot of people, you know, probably the majority of people know somebody who, you know, who, who was affected. Um, I was in the Netherlands at the time. I was just living there for about a year. And, you know, and even just being in the country, you could really feel how, how tragic it was. And I think that, you know, especially with the, the propaganda war that Michael has mentioned, the, the lies that Russia has been putting out, the Russian state and its media, um, the way I see it is that effectively, you know, denying um, the relatives, the friends of those who were killed, the truth, and they're denying them any kind of closure. Um, and so for this reason, it remains, you know, extremely important for the world not to avert its gaze, um, you know, and for people to, you know, try and get the answers, the full answers about what happened. Um, and I think that, you know, as Rudy mentioned, you know, it's an extremely important event for Europe um, and, and for the Netherlands, and you know, definitely the world mustn't avert its gaze. I don't think MH17 is going anywhere. I think right now it's the calm before the storm, because we're all waiting for uh, these reports to come out, the two different investigations, the one into what happened and the one into who's at fault for what's happened. And once uh, those things come out, then you know, people are going to realize that uh, the downing was Putin's Gaddafi moment, and it was the beginning of his isolation from the rest of the world. And uh, it's a different story a little bit, because you can't isolate the entire country of Russia as easily as uh, Libya was isolated for so many years. But you know, the same emotion and desire to do so, I think, is going to be there once all of the I's are dotted and the T's are crossed, and uh, all of the statesmen have to uh, tell their publics that they believe 
um, that you know the Russian military was behind this, and uh, um, so you know I think right now we're talking about it because it's the uh, anniversary, but we're going to be talking a lot more about this down the line. I think maybe even for decades to come. So okay, so then what happens? You know we have this proposal to create a tribunal to try those uh, responsible. Russia's on the Security Council. That proposal's probably not going to go anywhere. So let's say the report comes out and says this uh, brigade from Kursk was the one responsible. Mm -hmm. Then what happens? Well, you know, even if there isn't a UN tribunal, and you know, there's, they can put it to a vote of the General Assembly, and Russia doesn't have a veto there, so there's still a potential for that to happen. Um, but even if it doesn't happen, I think that uh, most Western countries um, are going to stand by the findings of the uh, Dutch investigators. I don't think they need a UN tribunal. I think the UN tribunal is needed for the Russian people, to be honest, because the trouble for them is that if there isn't a tribunal um, that, that they recognize, uh, that points the figure at some specific actors, maybe down from the commander-in-chief to the people who push the button, then that sort of implicates the entire Russian people. So, you know, for ordinary Russians to be able to absolve themselves of this crime, they need uh, a process um, uh, which, which, which their country and they themselves can recognize as being an objective process. So I think it's very important for Russia primarily to have this UN International Tribunal. Um, and I, I just want to wind it back a little bit to the, you know, what actually happened uh, that day a year ago. Uh, David of uh, Corrective mentioned, uh, Collective, sorry, mentioned, you know, facts that everybody agrees on, that it was a book, that it was this and that. It seemed like from the very beginning the Russians were doing their utmost to make sure there were no facts that anybody agreed on, that there were, you know, just constantly throwing in information, muddying the waters. How, um, I mean, all of you did investigative work on this. How do you... Um, you know, grasp at tangible things when the Russians are trying to make everything kind of disintegrate in your hands? Because something about it, it's, it's pretty hard to, to check things. That's why I respect uh, Bellingham Corrector so much uh, in these times, because especially in the Netherlands, uh, it's hard to find people who are willing to talk uh, on record um, because everybody's involved in the, in the investigation committee, it seems, all experts. For instance, um, the, the famous 21st of July press conference giving in Russia and Moscow, um, uh, there, there, you know, you've, you've got the radar images uh, saying that there's an Su-25 uh, jet fighter in the air uh, at the time MH-17 was downed. Um, I, I tried for months to get a radar expert on the record um, just looking at the image and, and, and saying something, uh, if, if it's genuine or not. And eventually I, I got a few uh, experts, uh, also an Italian guy who seemed to be uh, the European uh, top expert on radar images. <laughs> and it appeared that, that um, uh, the points uh, that the Russians point out as being the SU-25 is actually falling debris from MH17. Um, it's as simple as that. Uh, but it was hard to, to make the story because of what I told you, that, that every, everybody's you know, being silent at the moment. But if the, if the investigation uh, re um, report uh, comes out, probably things like that will become uh, much more clear in a short time. And I think they want to push that back as far as possible because like you said nobody wants to have to confront the fact that they have to somehow deal with Russia and I also kind of disagree with the idea that this didn't change the course of the war I think it brought a lot more um, 
unity uh, in, in Europe for sanctions. And I think the threat of further sanctions definitely stayed uh, Russia's hand in terms of maybe expanding the operation to, to other parts of Ukraine. We can never know that for sure, but I think there is a deterrent effect of the threat of you know, greater sanctions, which was definitely buoyed by um, this tragedy. Uh, you talked, Simon, about uh, Russia's increasing isolation, and uh, you know when CNN leaked the uh, you know the preliminary okay. findings of the Dutch investigators a couple days ago, Pierre uh, Canal, the Russia's uh, Kremlin-owned Channel One, did an extensive report on it and said uh, you know and showed uh, images again and video of that infamous uh, press conference in Moscow at the Defense Ministry, and said. You know, we trotted out all this information. We have concrete facts within days. We were so transparent. The West has nothing, has no proof, no evidence, nothing. Um, how do you deal, and this gets back to my question about, you know, facts everybody agrees on. How do you deal with the fact that you, I mean, you're dealing with something that's very quintessentially Russian, where you present evidence and they say, I don't see any evidence. Mm -hmm. So how do you, you know, in all of your roles, which are uh, very different, how do you, um, how do you deal with that? Like with trolls, you know. I mean, the, I mean, the the main trolls is like the Kremlin and their you know media apparatus. But um, you could say, in a way, that that they're winning the propaganda war because they are, like you said, saying, "Hey, we we presented all kinds of stuff and you didn't." Uh, for instance, everybody is is is, is screaming online, uh, "Where are the 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 American satellite images? Why uh, don't we see them? Yeah, Why don't huge. they?" Yeah, mm -hmm. that's that's mm -hmm. amazing. Also in the Netherlands. A lot of Dutch critics are, are, are screaming this. Why don't you show the, the, image, the satellite images? And even until now, we don't know if our investigation committee actually has those images, because they're not commenting on that either. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's definitely a very difficult thing. Does the work of uh, organizations like Bellingcat help? Do, do people in the Netherlands trust that? Uh, not everybody, of course. But uh, I think a lot of people do. And I think it's, it's been very. Uh, important. Uh, also, I, I've I've experienced uh, that that maybe Simon has, and I, as, as old school uh, field reporters, um, uh, discovered that there's a lot of people online who are uh, doing things we're probably not capable of. Uh, totally. Well, yeah, <laughs> and and that's that's very impressive. I'm, I'm, I think it's uh, it's very good that we can like help each other out. And for instance, they do the online research stuff, and then Simon goes goes back to the Russia and the east of Ukraine to to like check those things, you know, on the spot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to, um, in my investigation yeah. of the Russian soldier uh, in eastern Ukraine, basically, we shared photographs with Bellingcat, and they were like, oh, well, this photograph was taken here, here, and here. And, and I was like, how did you, how did you do that? How <laughs> did you do that, Iggy? Well, you know, basically, we do a lot of geolocation. So you know, going back to how do we know what's, what's true? How do we know what, what, what's false? Um, you know, so for us, for example, verification is something we do to you know, if we find an image, we'll try and locate that exactly, or we'll try and look at what the actual original source of that was. So, you know, a lot of the time when we deal with things that have been uploaded by the person who actually took the image, who had no idea it had anything to do with MH17, um, you know, who's a real person whose Instagram profile you can check out and look at their friends, you know that this is true, you know this is a primary source. Um, and I think that, you know, so for example, like the Russian propaganda and the Russian state media um, often tow out that line where, you know, we've presented stuff and you haven't. Well, they've never actually really um, talked about anything that Bellingcat has presented in Russian media. 
that's, that's an interesting thing. I mean, the day after my, um, my investigation on MH17 came out at Bellingcat, uh, you know, within about half an hour, a researcher on Russia Today added me on Twitter. And later that evening, they would, you know, they basically they had my article up on screen with, where you could see my name. But they would say, who is this person? Who is this anonymous person? Even though my name was there. And then instead, they started talking about Elliot and basically attacking him for, you know, who pays you and so on. And, you know, whereas we're all volunteers getting no money, um, and, you know, Russia today is an extremely well-funded organization. So I think, you know, it's, it's really very convenient for them to say, well, the West doesn't have anything when they've deliberately tried to confuse everyone and ignore everything else. Michael? If I could say something, uh, as someone who deals with a lot of journalists from around the world, is that what we're really seeing a lot, what we hear from journalists is uh, budget cutting, slashing of budgets in the newsroom. There is a lot of interest in Ukraine from a lot of the uh, colleagues we work with, but uh, as more and more bean counters move into newsrooms and foreign reporting budgets are cut, it's very difficult to, to do that sort of um, old school, if I can put it that way, investigative reporting. So I've talked to colleagues of mine and other international organizations, and I think there's a awareness now among us is that we have, it's incumbent upon us almost to help facilitate the work of journalists by making it easier for them to go to the fields in which we operate, whether that's providing them with broadcast quality B-roll, with more briefings, things like that. But there are ways to, to get around those budget cuts. But it is unfortunately hitting very, very severely severely to many mainstream and media And it's the outlets. opposite of what's happening in official Russian media. Mm -hmm. Their budgets keep going up and up. Yeah, and it's interesting because um, some of the uh, investigative work going on and many different issues around the world are done by chaps sitting thousands of kilometers away at their desk going through trolls or going through uh, geolocating, things like that. So there's no replacement, though, I must say, for that traditional gumshoe work that these two gentlemen do uh, day in and day out. So again, anything we can do to help facilitate that is very important. Mm -hmm. Uh, Simon, you mentioned that it, this would be <clears throat> some kind of uh, process, you know, accountability and process of judgment would be good for the Russian people. If you look at the Russian media space, um, you know, not even since uh, MH17 came down, but since the Maidan movement started, Russians have been getting a completely different picture, an entirely different. It's like they're, <clears throat> and you also mentioned Russia's isolation. Informationally, they're also becoming very isolated. And so if you look at, for example, the Canal, the Channel One mm -hmm. report from a couple days ago, um, it's presented to Russia, like all of the stuff that Bellingcat does, like proving that um, satellite images are, are photoshopped, those corrections never run you know, on Russian TV. So how do you deal with the fact that um, as far as the Russian population goes, the Ukrainians shot it down with American help. And then they're trying to foist the blame on Russia. And there's pretty much nothing, you know, even the OSCE is seen as, um, you know, a, 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 a Western, Western ploy, tool, yeah. a Western ploy to humiliate Russia, et cetera. So how do, you, how do you deal with that? Well, I think there's people in Russia who will never um, want to understand or try to understand. And they've dug into their position. And, and that's that. Um, and maybe I'm overestimating the power of a, you know, a United Nations process of some kind. Um, but I think you know the United Nations is something that uh, the Russian government <clears throat> hearkens to all of the time, um, at least rhetorically, and talks about how it's an important institution to them, and they recognize it and want to be a part of it and love their veto in it, and et cetera, et cetera. So 
I'm not saying that suddenly you know, everybody's eyes are going to open, but at least there'll be a segment of the population which is following things um, uh, that are coming from outside of the Russian media sphere um, that hopefully will get something out of it. And uh, I think it would be important maybe to Russian future generations as well, if not now. Anyone? Uh, yesterday, uh, Australian broadcaster uh, aired a video uh, made right after the crash by the rebels themselves looking at the debris and uh, commenting on that. And at the end of the clip, there's something about the uh, SU-25 jet fighter, or at least a jet fighter. And um, we had a, my network had, a, had a, like a voice analyst look at it. And um, uh, the video uh, is not new at all. There, there's clips of that already uh, aired by the BBC previously. And, uh, uh, if, he, if you compare that, it, the, the analyst saying that uh, this voice, this new voice, uh, sounds like it's being dubbed uh, because it's also more hollow, it could be recorded inside. Um, so uh, there's now discussion about the, the genuinity of, of it. And he's also adding that if it's dubbed, it's, it's pretty unprecedented. I mean, these kinds of videos uh, being manipulated in such a way is something we don't really know yet. It's, it's pretty new. Uh, so the propaganda war Michael was referring to is, is getting pretty seriously if it's... Mm -hmm. You know, these fake, fake experts, fake think tanks that the Russians are trotting out. Did you want to add to this? Um, well, I, I think I'd say to that is that it just reminds us as the unique organization where we are, that we are. And by the way, I should remind people that, you know, we're unique in the sense that 57 participating states, which includes Russia, Ukraine, US, Canada, uh, votes by consensus. Our mission was born by a consensus vote. The mandate was extended by consensus. So uh, it, it is important to have these uh, international bodies, these international instruments. You know, I'm often asked um, why, why is, is Minsk dead or, you know, is the ceasefire dead? And I say, well, my answer to that is that it's so crucially important to have a roadmap in place and to also have a form for dialogue. The worst thing that could happen, of course, if there's no dialogue going on whatsoever and if there's no roadmap in, roadmap in place. So part of our role, of course, is to um, help facilitate that dialogue. I mentioned the trilateral contact group. Things are extremely fragile right now. There's a lot of trigger happiness. There's a lot of uh, ammunition built up at the same place, heavy weaponry things are extremely, extremely tense. So that is why it's so important to have that dialogue facilitation in place. Um, <clears throat> I have one more question for Rudy, and then we'll open it up to the audience. Um, Rudy, I just, you alluded to this in your presentation about you know, the political changes happening inside uh, the Netherlands as a result of the MH17 crash. Um, Nether the Netherlands and Russia used to have a very close relationship, especially in the, the previous decade. So what was that reevaluation like, that process of reevaluation like politically inside the Netherlands? Um, I don't think you can see it yet, to be honest. Um, as you know, in Europe, we uh, depend a lot on, on, on uh, Russian gas. Yeah? There's a lot of uh, economical uh, interconnections between Europe and Russia. Um, and and uh, we were pretty uh, severe, and, and our prime minister also, uh, of course, uh, stimulated the economical sanctions uh, right after MH17 a lot. But after that, like after the first month, nothing really happened. Um, uh, we have had uh, uh, our political um, interconnection with, with Russia, uh, I think, in a pretty normal way. And I don't think you can see it yet. 
referring to the like defense budget and stuff like that, that, that has to be uh, it's more getting more clear in, in, in September when we, we have our new mm -hmm. government budget uh, presented. I think it's, it's too early to say. It's, uh, it's, it's um, yeah, uh, I think it's, it's um, interesting to see that our government is like taking their hands off anything. And uh, what about, you know, men on the street? Uh, how, do they, how do they view the Russians maybe before the crash and after? It's, it's, I think, um, I, I don't know exactly. The more interesting thing I, I find that there's also in Holland um, a group of people, and it's hard to say how big this group is because they're mainly online, which is like a, sort of a, like a libertarian right-wing blogger kind of group um, uh, who are venti, very much uh, anti-European Union. Mm -hmm. And for that, they seem to be pro-Putin. And, um, and uh, yeah, so there's, there's also within the Netherlands, uh, despite the fact that uh, a lot of evidence is piling up now against uh, Russian-backed separatists, a lot of people who are actually criticizing us as the media and our government uh, for being uh, too anti-Putin. Mm -hmm. All right, we'll open the floor up to questions. And let's make sure they're questions, not statements. Uh, Steve Winters, uh, consultant. This is for Michael from OSCE. Uh, since you mentioned this a couple of times, it's kind of a minor point, but you talked about the ju jamming of your drones. Uh, it's, uh, my understanding is there is a lot of jamming going on, but it's uh, to mess up the uh, targeting by the heavy artillery from the Ukrainian side uh, so that they can't hit the, the, the uh, rebel targets accurately. So do you see this jamming as just uh, directed at you actually to somehow prevent what you're doing, or is it just sort of something that's taking place uh, because jamming is going on to make sure people can't identify targets and has really nothing to do with you directly? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Well, the jamming, I can tell you, has been going on for weeks, if not months, uh, over wide swaths of territory controlled by the DPR. Uh, I believe it was in the past week that uh, one of our drones actually spotted uh, a jamming vehicle. And uh, again, it jams the video feed, also confuses the GPS system, so our operators have to put it under manual control and fly it back. And it's not only, uh, it's not only that we've been, our drones have been targeted by jamming, they've also been targeted by live fire. So uh, one of them is inoperable because of that, uh, because of that. There's a, there's, some anxiety, if I can put it that way, um, over these drones. I can, I don't know if any of you remember, but uh, uh, once the big numbers of Australians and Dutch uh, experts came into the MH17 site, the uh, Australian Federal Police actually brought a drone with them so they could have an aerial eye in the sky. The rebels at that time that were control of the crash site were so nervous about it, they didn't allow it into the sky. That thing never flew. So that was a very unfortunate because it was thought at that time that their drone could help spot human remains, person belongings, that sort of thing. We saw video drones today flying over mm -hmm. Jabapo during the memorial, uh, the local memorial, uh, though. I'm not sure uh, which network was able to uh, put them in the sky, but Russia today is uh, allowed by the rebels uh, a lot of times recently to put video drones on targeted areas. Ed Verona with McLarty Associates. Um, uh, John mentioned uh, Igor Gurkin in his uh, opening remarks, but no one else has said another word about him. Could anybody say what, uh, what has become of him? Uh, has anyone done any further investigation of the communications between him and various other people 
uh, after the incident? I mean, as far as I know, I haven't met him personally in Moscow, but uh, he's around and he goes to various fundraisers. He very rarely gives interviews to uh, big networks, but he does give uh, interviews to, um, you know, nationalist-friendly sort of internet YouTube channel type stations, and uh, quite often. Um, and uh, I don't think he has any direct control over what's going on uh, in eastern Ukraine anymore at all. I think he's been banned by the Kremlin from participating, and now he's just sort of a firebrand loudmouth um, who likes to criticize the Kremlin's policy for not expanding the war further into Ukraine. We did track down Borodai, the prime minister of the republic at the time uh, recently. Uh, we had an interview. Um, appointment with him and he was very friendly and open to give an interview but uh, we showed up, my colleague uh, and the correspondent in Moscow showed up twice at his office but he, uh, he was not there. And then a week later I saw a picture in the newspaper of a colleague of mine, uh, Olaf Koons, who was also a correspondent. And he bumped into uh, this guy into a cafe, in a cafe. Where uh, opposition journalists hang out. Yeah, yeah, so there was like 10 international journalists uh, drinking beers suddenly bumping into uh, Alexander Borodai and they made a selfie of the group, I think. It was quite a... It was a mini scandal, to be honest. Yeah. It didn't, didn't look very good, but in their defense, they were all drunk. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm of Cato Institute. I have a couple observations slash suggestions and one question. Um, observation one is it just uh, with enormous uh, investigations that have been done by Bellingcat and Corrective, it does not look like that you have used uh, the information that has been uncovered by Russian and Ukrainian bloggers. Uh, at least I haven't seen any reference, but this is enormous information has been uh, some kind of found even just with, with very first few days uh, after the tragedy. And I think for the overall picture, it would be extremely useful uh, to combine what you have done with what has been done by uh, Russians and Ukrainians bloggers and would produce a really full picture. And it gives me maybe a suggestion, Julie, to you, when you're saying something quintessential Russian, I think probably you had in mind quintessential Kremlin, just not to confuse Russians and Kremlin, okay? That's a very important difference. Not all Russians follow Kremlin. That's a point. Okay. Um, another suggestion, Mike, you, you. because in, from your comments, it seems to me you said that the conflicts launched in April, which suggests that you would exclude Crimea fully. Occupation, annexation, and all this, what uh, Simon has reported extensively from Crimea, which is not essentially correct, because uh, war has been studied by according to the Russian Minister of Defense, on February 20th. Look at the medal for return of Crimea. Okay, um, as I, let's keep it to a question. Right, and the question is exactly what you have in the uh, announcement, part one, who shut down MH17? So we know who pushed the button. So the question is who shot down MH17? No, 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 it just let me, let me formulate it, okay. Uh, we know who pushed the button. My question just to to make it more accurate, who gave the order to push the button? I would like to ask everybody. <laughs> I cannot answer it. 
I can't either, but I'll give you the answer I give journalists who ask me that is that uh, we'll wait for the investigators to come up uh, with, with their conclusions on this. I think there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that points to the fact that this uh, uh, book was provided by Russia and a lot of circumstantial evidence that shows that you can't operate a book unless you've had a lot of training and... Uh, Current training, like fresh training. Right. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, um, and so, I, you know, I think we can say that there's a lot of evidence pointing towards Russia. Um, but I think the question of who gave the order, I don't know if necessarily there would have been an order. I mean, I wasn't in the book. You know, he's sitting there looking at his little radar screen. You know, he's got like two seconds to make a decision. And then he pushes the button. I mean, he, I suppose he had sort of general orders, whoever pushed the button. But I don't think he had a specific order. Then again, I'm just you know pulling stuff out of the sky, so who knows? Yes, to follow up on that point, I thought uh, David um, Crawford's uh, description of what it takes to operate these, and you have 40 seconds to make a decision. So my question is, and, and his comment that sooner or later this kind of incident would have probably happened, given the fact that the equipment was there and and the amount of time you have to make a decision. Well, according to an interview I saw on Russian TV yesterday with a uh, Russian aviation expert, if you bring a book, le book like that in isolation without the other parts of the echelon, which have radars that tell you exactly what you're looking at in the sky, then essentially you can't really know for sure what you're shooting at, and that it was pretty much criminal just to bring it without the rest of the equipment on its own. It can fire on its own um, and hit things, clearly. Uh, but uh, it, it's not as accurate. You, 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 don't, you don't see what, what's going on up in the sky as well without the other five or six or maybe even seven pieces. That's, that's so what the indications are right now, eh? that it was not a complete book system with all the vehicles uh, which are supposed to be there. So my question is, we're not looking to necessarily put malicious blame on someone because of all these circumst circumstantial uh, but we are looking for who is responsible. And most importantly, it's just like here in Washington, whatever scandal there is, it's the cover-up that becomes the bigger issue. So this incident took place, however you want to describe it. But the issue, the bigger issue is what happened subsequently in terms of access for the families and information and all of that. And is there a way to get the Russians to understand that's the, the issue. What do you mean by access for the families? Well, the, the cover-up. In other words, there was no access for recovery. Uh, in other words, the whole investigation uh, and the subsequent uh, dealing with, with the incident. Yeah, well, I've interviewed uh, rebel leaders a lot of times, and they have uh, been saying from the beginning on that the crash site was open to anyone who uh, wanted to go there, even uh, armed Dutch forces, uh, like, like armed policemen. Um, I'm not sure if, if, they, if they actually showed up, they would have let, let them there, but they, that, that's, that's definitely something they, they said for a long time. We have uh, opened the crash site to uh, all experts, but they didn't come directly. We had to like do the dirty work. And in a way, they're, 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 they're uh, right in that because the Dutch experts did not come directly after the crash because um, uh, it was a war zone, maybe they were a little bit afraid of what was going to happen also. They did not want to uh, recognize the Donetsk 
People's Republic, uh, you know, there was this whole discussion about signing agreements to hand over the bodies and stuff like that. Um, Michael knows more about, you know, if they're, uh, if they're truthful in, in, in that or not. Um, but uh, what I saw uh, and what I heard from them was that they always, uh, well, opened the crash site for at least journalists, but also for experts from the Netherlands. Yeah, initially there were difficulties, as I pointed out in my presentation, and then uh, there was a period where things had to be paused, and unfortunately that was when the large numbers of Dutch and Australian experts were already in Donetsk. A uh, ceasefire was agreed to. Uh, we got the big numbers out there into the field. They maybe had a day or two of work, and then, what do you know, shelling happens nearby. We had to leave. We don't know who broke the ceasefire. They know who they are. But um, I can tell you that there, there was a lot of concern um, for, for many weeks about shelling nearby. And, um, you know, there were, I think there was a lot of bravery uh, demonstrated, too, by, uh, by many of the experts. And I remember I wrote this in my um, CNN.com piece the first day that the large number of Dutch and Australian experts came on the crash site. I think it was the Australian commander who said, treat every day in the field as if it's your last one. Because the point there being is that we don't know how much time will be available to collect human remains, personal belongings. So it was a very difficult situation uh, on many, many days. Thank you. Hi, Ruth Wedgwood from SICE. Um, one, one question, is there any, I'm try, trying to think through what the purpose of this misfire could have been. Is there any use for a buck other than shooting down aircraft? Is it a general artillery weapon? I'm just surprised again that Mother Russia would bring a book into the theater of conflict if its only uh, purpose as a weapon system is to take down aircraft. There was a lot of a Ukrainian lot. air activity yeah. in the area. They've shot down a few planes previously. Like I think around that time, 10 Ukrainian uh, air force maybe even 14, I don't remember, but yeah, something you know, about yeah. had been shot down and they were bombing the area. And the rebels uh, didn't have any aircraft themselves, so it was like a very necessary thing for the military to, to have such a weapon. Yeah. But not by book. Excuse me? But not by book. That's the only case of using book. What do you it's, mean? It, it's another aircraft system that has been used before. Yes, of it's course, the they had man pads. So it's not the only case of using book, so that the question is absolutely correct. Because it's only the first and the last case of using book in this conference. Well, actually, um, there were certain reports, you know, suspicions that an An-27 uh, was shot down. It was different systems, different, different altitudes, and a different system. Well, you know, it was a different system because, as I know, uh, the, even the Kiev government until now does not know what caused the Antonov to crash. But nevertheless, it's a, it's a different story. There is no confirmation, there is no energy, there is no... Okay, all right. Well, actually, um, sorry, I just want to also want to point out that, um, going back to the original question, that um, there were numerous posts on social media on contacted from local groups um, in the Snezhny-Torres area, you know, and there were suspicions sort of on the day, in the hours, you know, preceding the attack that, you know, there was people were suspecting that there was going to be a, a plane incoming. There was sort of a lot of chatter about people getting sort of excited that there you know, might be another Ukrainian plane or there might be some, some more bombing. And you know, Bellingcat explored that and actually looked at the fact that you know, there, there was a reason for the separatists to transport a book missile system into the area on that particular day. Other questions? 
Hi, I'm Benjamin Haddad from the Hudson Institute. Uh, if you allow me, I actually uh, like to uh, take a little step back from the MH17 uh, uh, episode and ask you about the situation right now, and especially for those of you who still uh, travel to the field regularly, what you make of the implementation of the ground of the Minsk II uh, ceasefire uh, agreements. Well, um, as you know, there have been two rounds of Minsk, uh, September and then in February. Uh, in February, very clear roadmap was, lined, uh, was outlined uh, for everyone to follow. Uh, most crucially, of course, was the maintaining the ceasefire, and also the removal of heavy weaponry. Um, the ceasefire, as I indicated, and as my colleagues frequently say, is very fragile at the moment. Uh, we record many, many violations uh, almost every day, pretty much every day. In terms of the removal of heavy weaponry, uh, what there were three basic steps there. One was to provide the OSC, and this both sides were to provide the OSC with an inventory of what they have, in other words, a baseline that we can work off of. Secondly was to advise us of the routes that will be taken to move the heavy weaponry. And thirdly, most crucially, is to identify where the storage sites are, where these weapons will be kept out of harm's way. Um, the first point, giving us the inventory, we never, uh, as far as I know right now, received the full information from both sides, and that's made the monitoring of the heavy weaponry very difficult. And then also, as you see in our daily reports, uh, we go visit the storage sites on a daily basis, and oftentimes the weapons have been uh, moved. Um, and some of the excuses we get, well, they're being used in a parade or you know, they're being used on training. So that part is very difficult. And the other steps in Minsk, uh, we, we haven't got that far yet. Um, and uh, you know, the other worrisome thing is, I've said this in a few interviews recently, is that we're also beginning to see training or firing ranges pop up on the rebel side. And uh, they're, they're also using weaponry there that is prescribed by Minsk. So, it's a very uh, difficult situation right now, and um, you know, all the politics aside, again, you know, we have to remind people that at the end of the day, it's the civilians that are really suffering. I mentioned the numbers to you before, and uh, you know, there, as I, I think the number I quoted from the UN was 2.3 million uprooted. That number is going up very quickly. I think in some weeks you have 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people leaving the conflict zone for um, safer ground in um, areas controlled by the Ukrainian government. One last point on that is that after so many months of hosting these displaced people, it, you can imagine the strain that it's put on host communities as far as Lviv and Western Ukraine on uh, uh, NGOs that are looking after these folks uh, on the social fabric of the country. It's, um, it, and it does uh, create tensions as well. For our part, uh, we've done Two things off the top of my head is one, we've done a thematic report on the situation of IDPs. And the second thing we do, for example, in Western Ukraine is we try to hold round tables or dialogues with people to help prevent tension from, from this uh, new population configuration. Maybe you can just illustrate it. I mean, Michael's the best on the, on the numbers. Uh, the last trip I made with the relative you just saw on the screen was uh, early June and then uh, we, the very day that we wanted to enter the DPR was the day that there was fighting going on in Marienka, like a fort town of, of, of Donetsk. And it, it appeared that it was like becoming this new Debaltsevo uh, a bit. So all the Ukrainian checkpoints were closed actually that day and was not able to, we were not able to enter the DPR at all. 
at, at the end we're uh, finding a little uh, hole and we, we, we did enter it, but, but yeah, uh, that day there was big fighting going on again, so it can shift uh, very much uh, day to day. Uh, and also in the factory I told you about, uh, we went up to the roof of the, high, uh, of the highest building over there in the night and you could, could actually see in this case the Ukrainians shelling uh, Donetsk airport from there with uh, heavy artillery. I'm not an expert on, on what kind of artillery, but it was like huge fireworks you could say uh, that night and that was, that was just uh, yeah, your average day. Have you been back recently? Not since a couple of months, so I wouldn't like to talk about it. So if, so if there's a, sorry, I'm just going to ask a follow-up question, but if there's all these uh, ceasefire violations happening every day, all day, every day, again, is this a, it's, it, you know, to connect this back to MH17, it's, you know, we, we don't say it's a ceasefire violation because then it would oblige us toward a cer certain course of action. Or, I mean, what, is, is there a political decision there to, to not say that Minsk II is dead? Well, you know, there are uh, important former, for, forums, as I mentioned earlier. There's the Minsk uh, uh, meetings happening. We're, we're involved in the security working group. Progress is slow, but uh, again, talks are continuing. There's the Normandy format meetings. Um, again, it goes back to what we said earlier. It's very important that uh, the world not avert its gaze from, from this uh, conflict. Uh, I can tell you that at the, um, often at the permanent uh, council meetings of the OSC, Ukraine is very, very much at the top of the agenda. Our Ambassador Apakan just reported uh, earlier this week to the Permanent Council. And in very, I, I can say, I think in a very granular for, uh, format with a lot of detail because we are there on the ground in, in such numbers. I'd like to add another quick point because we also have to look ahead too. Uh, one of the things we've been reporting on, uh, which is very, very worrisome, is the buildup of unexploded ordnance. I mean, you can imagine after so many months of fighting how much there is concentrated. It's become a huge uh, threat to civilians uh, and to aid workers. And also the massive, massive destruction of infrastructure, bridges, uh, roads, uh, railways. I think the UN a few months ago, maybe two or three months ago, came up with a preliminary figure of the cost of reconstruction. I believe it was one billion plus, probably a lot more than that. But destruction of those bridges is also impeding the flow of civilians across the, the contact line so that they can go into Ukraine proper and get uh, their pensions to get medical aid, things like that. It's a very, very complex, uh, difficult situation. Andrews, I think, had a question. Anders Åslund, uh, Atlantic Council, wanted to follow up on uh, Michael Bocirkov's uh, statement here that there are 2.3 million people who have uh, left. Uh, 1.3. Uh, 1.3, but... Uh, the it's, you 2. said 2.3. 2.3 uh, uprooted is the way the, the UN put it. Yeah, but you have also people have... Uh, 1.3 in Ukraine, then we have uh, people in Russia. Yes. You have normally two different numbers there, half a million or one million, yeah. both are even. And then normally you have 100,000 people going to other uh, places. Yeah. How many people are uh, left now? What is your uh, assessment of that? Thank you. Uh, very difficult number to come up with, but I can, let me answer it this way. Um, you know, you've probably heard of Shodokhne by now, the village uh, to the uh, east of Mariupol heavily, heavily shelled over the past uh, weeks. Uh, we've been trying as much as possible to uh, not only observe what's going on there, but also to arrange for uh, the guns to go down for a ceasefire so civilians can you know, at least return. 
But uh, in our most recent reports, uh, that, that village is now empty, and uh, this, this could have been avoided. Um, we were also at the uh, village uh, closest to uh, Donetsk Airport uh, a few weeks back. I was there as well. It was virtually empty. In a lot of the uh, settlements uh, in eastern Ukraine, in rebel-held areas, uh, you have villages that are almost deserted, and those that are left behind are unfortunately the most vulnerable, the elderly, uh, those with physical disabilities, um, and also you see some children there. On that point, and I mean, I've worked a long time in UNICEF, and um, we have to also mention the toll it's taking on children in the conflict zone. Uh, the number that have been killed, the number that have been injured, displaced, and the psychosocial distress as well is absolutely huge. Um, and um, even before the conflict, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, you know Ukraine wasn't well, very well set up to deal with that types of types of large numbers of distressed uh, young people. So this is something that the international community could possibly help in, in, in dealing with that huge problem. You know, what children really want are a sense of normality. They want to play, they want to go to school, they want uh, roofs over their head, and they don't want to hear shelling. Um, I've worked, I've worked uh, a long time um, in Gaza and the West Bank, and I've seen the effect that this can have over a prolonged period of time. So it's a huge concern in, in Ukraine as well. So looking forward, I mean, you mentioned these um, deserted villages. Looking forward, you know, what do you do with this region? It's been splintered off from Ukraine. Russia doesn't seem to be looking to absorb it. It doesn't really have the money anymore to do so. You know, this is a question to all the panelists. Um, how do you see this unfolding going forward, and what do you do with the Donbass? Well, first, to illustrate uh, Michael's numbers also, uh, again, um, in, in February, I think the clip uh, you saw diving uh, into the snow uh, was in a village called uh, Nikishino near to the Bolchevo. Um, and I think it's a village of 1,000 inhabitants, and at that time there were only five families left. And the rest of the village was totally but completely um, shot apart. I mean, the, the, the Ukrainians have, have, have stayed on the one side of the village for a few months, and the rebels on the other side. And in the crossfire, there was just not one house uh, being unharmed. And that, that's, 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 that's mm -hmm. really, really terrible to see. And I think it's very difficult, of course, to build up villages like that uh, in, the, in the near future. Um, talking about the children, I uh, also made a report about uh, Donetsk Opera House, who is uh, actually um, still running operas for children uh, all during the war, uh, which is like very strange to see, of course, playing Cinderella when the rockets are flying over your, uh, your city. Um, but to answer your question uh, about the next future, I mean, so many people fled. Um, economy is obviously not... Um, the economy of the Donetsk Republic is obviously uh, not able to, to, uh, to, to stand, to stand to, uh, for a long time because uh, there's no money flooding anymore from, uh, from Kiev, uh, no pensions, uh, the whole coal uh, minery uh, industry is, is just on a standstill. So I'm, I'm very curious how long they will be able to like, survive uh, being independent and not being funded from, from Russia. Well, I did a 23-minute long report specifically uh, about Russia's involvement in eastern Ukraine so that I could say that Russia is involved in eastern Ukraine and, and not have to cage that with anything. I know that there are Russian soldiers ordered by the Russian government who have been sent to eastern Ukraine. And I think the answer for what happens in the Donbass lies with Russia. And so there needs to be pressure on Russia 
if this conflict is going to end and you can't fix the Donbass until the conflict is over. It's up to Russia to end the war there. So I think, I think all, um, all, all measures should be towards pushing Russia towards ending the war because it has to come from them. We've, um, we've spoken to many internally displaced people being housed in places like Dnipropetrovsk and Kamatorsk, and the one thing, the one thing that they always repeat to us is when you ask, you know, when are you going to go home or do you want to go home, and they don't want to go home until the shelling stops, until they're assured that their kids won't be killed by, by live fire. Um, the second thing, as I mentioned earlier, there's a huge effort to demine bridges, roads, railways. It's an enormous threat right now. It's very expensive to do so. You need a lot of experts there on the ground. Um, once again, that will be a role that the international community could uh, uh, fill in once you know, access uh, becomes possible in those areas. Do we have time for more questions? I don't know how we're doing on time. OK, all right, we have five more minutes. Go for it. Um, um. My name is Yaroslav Martinuk. I'm formerly with the Radio Liberty. Uh, my question is for Rudy. Uh, I'm still perplexed, puzzled by the Dutch government's reaction to the downing of MH17. Is there not a realization in the Dutch government by, that by being ambiguous, they are complicit in Russia's denial, cover-up, lie of everything? That, that's happening. It's very, answer, very difficult to answer that because you know I can't look into the, the souls and the minds of our government. Um, so yes, uh, uh, what, what's definitely happening is that they're uh, uh, trying to distance them from, you know, uh, blaming the Russians at this point. Um, why they're doing that? Can and you speculate. <laughs> I don't, as a journalist, I don't like to speculate too much, to be honest. But there's, there's definitely a lot of criticism at the Dutch government. I mean, at, at first, after, uh, there's, there's been some, um, some surveys uh, of a university, um, you know, uh, judging uh, how politics, if, pol if our politicians are trusted eh, last year, over last year. And just after MH17, when they brought the bodies back and there were very good, um, what do you call it, respectful uh, repatriation missions and stuff like that. It was increased a lot. So first it was like 40% of the population trusted the government, and then it was 60%, something like that. After that, um, when things like this, this uh, started to happen, it, it went, went down again. So during the last winter, the, 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 the trust in our government went down again on this issue uh, also. But why they are doing this, I can't tell you. I think it would be obviously quite difficult for, you know, the Dutch criminal investigation to take place. And, you know, if you want the government to actually pick a side before the investigation is completed, I mean, that seems, you know, that doesn't seem productive, for, you know, for the government to basically claim that one thing is set and then to have an ongoing criminal investigation. So I think it's, you know. The one thing I did say in my speech was that there's Russian investigators in the investigation committee. And if our government would say, Right now, the, are to, the Russians are to blame. Uh, they would probably uh, leave the investigation committee directly, making, um, making the, to speculate a little bit, <laughs> uh, making, um, uh, let's say, uh, relations already a lot harder and also making the investigation itself more difficult right now. Because you want to have like all parties aboard during the investigation to be able to access 
all the size you want to go and to also, uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you're very disappointed, I can see. All right. Um, thank you so much to all our panelists. This was very interesting. Thank you to Atlantic Council for hosting this. Um, I, I think we're, oh wait, no, we're going to do another question? Okay. I'd like to thank everyone for coming out. There's one, there's one oh, thing okay. I wanted to, uh -huh. to point out. There's going to be a memorial march for the victims of the shootdown today at 5.30, um, starting in Lafayette Square and going to the residence of the Russian ambassador, just so everyone knows. Thank you. You heard that in Big Sunflower. Okay. All right. Thank you, everyone.